You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. All right. Gives me, <coughs> moving on, great pleasure to introduce a middle-aged white bitch feminist with a large readership. <laughs> so offensive. As she describes herself on her blog. <laughs> <laughs> um, with attitude, please. <laughs> with attitude. Uh, our next reader is a um, distinguished and prolific author with two successful series and a large number of standalone novels. She wrote the Haunted Ballad series, which is a sort of, I don't know, mystery uh, sort of Ghostbusters with guitars? Uh, Not really, but... Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, each novel is titled after an English folk song. Uh, our reader is also a musician. And also the Kincaid uh, series, which is just starting to come out. I think there's one out and one coming out there on the table. Also, Kincaid is a, an aging um, rock and roll musician uh, and... Um, somewhat modeled on the Rolling Stones, which I think is an English rock band of the 60s. Um, we can look it up. I, yeah, you can go, Google it up. Um, but I'll let, I, I mean, she's going to describe some of this as she sets up her books. So uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce a colleague, a fellow Bay Area author, and um, uh, a middle-aged white bitch feminist with a large readership, Deborah Gravy. Hey. Give it up for Michael. Was that not brilliant? <laughs> I got I got to I got to I get a lot of blurb requests for books, and I turned down about ninety nine out of a hundred. And um, uh, Dina Fisher sent me the Revenant Road and said, "Would you blurb this?" And uh, I went, "Oh hell yeah!" About halfway through, I was I was just because it does what horror is supposed to do. Any Shirley Jackson fans in the audience? <laughs> yeah, you know the portion when you you've the, the part of possibly the, the, the best horror novel in the English language is, is The Haunting of Hill House. And you get to the part in there and you suddenly realize that you're, you're laughing because if you don't, you're going to run screaming out of the house and go find a corner and suck your thumb. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, all good horror should do that. It should, it should make you feel as if you've just smashed your funny bone and you have to laugh. And oh. Revenant Road did that. Hey, this is for the discussion. Where's you supposed to be reading? Ah. Okay. Well, uh, with a, with a, with a, uh, since we are uh, science fiction in San Francisco, um, going to leave the Kincaids out of it as dearly as I love them, the books of my heart, because they have no fantasy element whatsoever. <coughs> These, on the other hand, do. Um, Michael and I are stable mates at Drollery Press, and Drollery Press has two of mine out, a small independent press. Um, and I'm going to read uh, two bits that are not remotely funny. We let Michael do that. I'm going to uh, read you first the prologue from Still Life with Devils. Uh, Publishers Weekly liked it, which made me very happy. And uh, Still Life with Devils is about a serial killer in the city of San Francisco um, who may or may not be human, targets specifically pregnant women. And as you, uh, you read further into the book, you discover that there is a feng shui aspect to what is happening with these victims. I'm going to give you the prologue, and that will set up the entire book. And uh, first of all, sound system okay? Are we fine? Good. Perfect. Here we go. So this is from Still Life with Devils. Teresa Gabriel, eight months pregnant, was on her way home. Despite her advanced pregnancy, she was walking as fast as she could. 
She had good reasons to hurry. The grocery bag she carried was heavy. The fog was in, curling around her ankles, obscuring the lights of Fulton Street. Also, it was nearly full dark. Common sense should have prevented her taking the shortcut through the western end of Golden Gate Park, especially at night. None of those reasons, there were others less benign, had been enough to outweigh the fact that she'd run out of eggs. This wasn't quite as silly as it sounded. Tonight was the Gabriel's fifth wedding anniversary. Jerry Gabriel was a fan of his wife's cooking. Teresa had planned to surprise him with his favorite dinner, souffle, but she'd run out of eggs. Couldn't make a souffle without eggs. She hitched the grocery bag higher, wincing at the pain of a stitch in her side. Bright red jacket was a splash of color against the thickening darkness. Jerry would be home in an hour. She kept walking. The bag, which contained not only eggs but milk and wine, was putting a cramp in her shoulder. She stopped and set it down panting. Maybe she should have taken the car. Driving a sports car at eight months pregnant wasn't easy. The last time she tried to wedge herself into the low-slung seat, she'd hurt her back and it had taken her nearly ten minutes to extricate herself. Besides, the doctor told her walking was good exercise. She wiped her sweaty palms on her jacket, decided it was time she stopped coddling herself with these little rest stops. Home was five minutes away. She could see the lights of her own kitchen windows through the trees. Teresa bent to retrieve the makings of Jerry's favorite dinner. As her hand closed on the bag, something rustled in the thick shrubbery to her left. A shape materialized out of the fog in the encroaching night, and a black-gloved hand holding something thick and heavy came down hard. The single well-placed blow to the back of her skull took her down into the darkness. She fell face down, one arm hitting the grocery bag, smashing the eggs that had brought her out to meet her own ending. Teresa Gabriel had no time to understand why or how death had come to her. She had no time either to realize that all of the reasons to mm, that of all of the reasons to have avoided this excursion, the most basic had never even occurred to her. The weapon that had taken her down was slipped into a deep pocket. In that same pocket was a long length of clear nylon cord. It was carefully, lovingly taken in hand. The killer cast one considering glance around at the deserted path, the deepening fog, the lack of traffic. They might have been alone together, hunter and prey, alone in the damp, chilly universe. The nylon cord went easily, much too easily, around Teresa Gabriel's neck. The ends were crossed, tightened, mercilessly held in place while the dying body bucked feebly, fighting for air and for life. But that battle was lost before it began. In moments, the cord pushed Teresa over the edge of nature's waiting dark place and into the world of light. The killer straightened, breathing heavily, a slight figure in black cotton trousers and jacket. These articles of clothing were cheap and nondescript, obtainable anywhere in Chinatown. San Francisco is full of people who wore those things, right down to the cotton shoes with the plastic soles. The only odd touch was a fisherman's cap angled low. For a moment, the shadowy figure stood, staring down at its sacrifice to mortality. But the pause was brief. There were still things to be done. Swiftly, with a curious grace, hands slipped beneath Teresa Gabriel's limp shoulders, pulling until the dead woman lay on her back, her head pointing toward the apartment she would never again see. Living hands manipulated dead ones and folded them across the swollen stomach. Then, the ritual of death and victory complete, the dark forms stood up. The air was foggy, growing darker with every passing moment. Hunter and Trophy were alone together. The killer walked away, back turned, as if that now death had been given, the abandoned envelope of skin and bone was pointless, worthy not even of contempt. On the ruined body of Teresa Gabriel, partially concealed by the shadow of tree and fog, of tree and sky, the fog settled in like a cool wet shroud. So that opens your book. Um, that was scary. And the, uh, the, the fantasy element in this one um, deals with, uh, we have a, a brother and sister um, 
the brother, in fact, uh, African-American, the first to reach his rank in uh, that department in, in San Francisco, um, is the homicide lieutenant in charge of this particular case. And his, uh, his name is Cass, that's Cassius, and his sister, Leo, uh, is a painter uh, who has a very odd little talent that nobody knows about. She can walk into her own paintings, literally. Uh, she can walk in and manipulate things within the paintings. She can pick leaves off trees. She can pet animals. She can eat fruit that she herself has painted. She can't walk into anybody else's work, but she can walk into her own. Um, the linchpin of the book where that comes together is with half the staff down uh, with the flu. She has occasionally, in the past, sat in for the sketch artist, the identikit artist, for homicide. Um, and when there was a witness to one of these killings in Chinatown during a Tai Chi session in Portsmouth Square here in Chinatown, um, she fills in for the artist and realizes as she sketches this person that she's drawn this person before. And she has 25 years of sketchbooks, sketch pads, jottings on napkins. She has no idea where she has seen him before. She has no idea why he's familiar. She only knows she has drawn him before. Um, and the book takes shapes from there, and then she gets a really bad idea. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that. If you want to know more about that, you get to read it. Um, an idea that she, she's had brighter ones than the one she gets towards the end of the book. So um, that, came out, that came out last year. Um, it was, in fact, Rillery's first print release. They do quite a lot of e-books, and they deal specifically in what they call transformative fiction, um, a, a lot of fantasy, a lot of very edgy horror stuff. They also have a wonderful online magazine called um, um, Distracted Membra, um, which prints fiction, uh, short pieces, and some, just some, some killer stuff. And yes, they've done two of mine. Michael, you should write them something. Yeah, you should I absolutely write them something. Yeah. Um, the second book is more along the lines of magic realism. This was actually first written and published everywhere except the United States. Um, Pan Macmillan brought it out in the UK, Australia, Canada, France, everywhere, but not here. Go figure. In 1993, and uh, Dina, who is the editor-in-chief and publisher at Drollery, has salivated over this book since she first read it in the original Pan version. And when she decided she wanted a follow-up to that, I kind of backed up here since I'm it's got the Kincaids and everything else going on. And she said, can I have it then put out the light? And I said, only if I'm allowed to update it because we are now in a post 9-11 world and certain travel restrictions. This is a book about movement and travel and several other things. Um, we have a woman of mixed ethnic ancestry, a woman named Emily Moon. Um, her mother was a Swedish alcoholic. Her father was Native American, literally pure Cherokee. And she had a very strange upbringing. She herself is a sculptor. She doesn't carve or sculpt anything that doesn't fly. Everything she carves and sculpts flies. At the beginning of the book, she has a very messy, very profitable for her divorce from her extremely tight-assed husband, who was a lawyer and who has impregnated a woman half his age. Um, and she decides that she's going to soothe her ego by going off and traveling. The last thing she carved before she goes off on her travels is this incredibly malevolent statue. It's a wasp with as one person who sees it says a stinger like a rapist's erection. Mm -hmm. Essentially, she's just encapsulated Gary, her ex-husband, into this, mm -hmm. this carved wasp koa, and I mean, it's just this feral, vicious, you know. And uh, so the wasp is pretty talismanic for her. She has gone, at the beginning of the bush book, she has, she's gone off to travel. She has gone to 
Greece and she has gone to Italy and she is hunting a man who has taken shape in her world that she once drew on a napkin when she was a teenager and he's suddenly materialized in her world and she thinks she's chasing him. I, she, I personally still believe that basically he's, he's leading her around until she's ready to cope. But she, is, uh, she has a little voice in her head um, and the little voice in her head is called Emmy Deer, D-E-E-R, because she is, it is th that is the name. This is, she's had this, and this is who this little voice in her head is. In this scene, she has just arrived in Heathrow from Italy, okay, where, had, where it has been snowing. It is, it is December. And yes, the Mediterranean gets really frickin' cold in the wintertime. You can, you can ski in Rome. So she has just arrived at Heathrow, and uh, remember the wasp. Emily's first encounter on British soil was not with Martin. She emerged from the room flight exhausted and empty, wanting a bed and a bath and above all food. Customs and immigration seemed to take forever, even by post-9-11 standards. There was a nagging pain in her stomach and her eyes were strained. So hollow did she feel that even the thought of airport food wasn't enough to deter her. Food there was, and in quantity. Heathrow appeared to consist primarily of luggage carts and restaurants. Emily staggered through immigration and looked around. A vagrant scent of cooking caught her. She followed it and found herself looking into a cafe. It looked as if it might serve hot food above and beyond the usual sausage rolls. Emily dropped wearily into a booth and considered the menu. Her mind was as sluggish as her body. Although the flight from Italy had been reasonably short, it had been bumpy, and because she'd left Italy on the spur of the moment, a seat had not been easy to obtain. She was halfway over Switzerland, flying through a howling storm and trying not to be sick, when she realized she was arriving in a city where hotels are either terrible or hard to find. She had no reservations, no plans, no knowledge of the endless teeming city in which she would be looking for shelter. The waiter arrived, and Emily ordered fresh eggs, toast, tea. The tea came first, hot and sweet. It revived her to such an extent that her exhaustion altered perceptibly to dreaminess, and she was able to think clearly, albeit remotely, about her immediate situation. Check into an airport hotel for as long as it took to find a short-term rental. She thought surely that was the wisest move. Dreaming, lazy, she lifted a slice of toast and felt something warm and alive crawling on the back of her right hand. Her reaction was immediate and unreasoned. She slapped at her hand and jumped, hitting the floor and rolling. There was an angry hum in her ears, unnaturally loud, much too close for safety. She got to her feet, ready to crush whatever it was, completely unnerved but ready for battle. She ignored the sharp, concerned exclamations of the other diners. All her attention was focused on a blank and yellow tube of a body hovering in the air not three feet from her face. And then the waiter had interposed his own body, swatting ineffectually at the buzzing, darting thing, killing it finally with the dish towel he carried over one arm. He hurried back to Emily, who was swaying on her feet. Her left shoulder throbbed dully where it had met the floor. You are right. Did it sting you, madam? My God, she thought weakly, it was real. He saw it too. A wasp? In an airport restaurant in January? Fine, she said, breathing hard, rubbing her shoulder. No, it, it, it didn't sting me. I'm fine. You know, this is my first trip to England. Do you often have wasps in the middle of the winter? Never seen one this time of year in all my life. I thought wasps died off around October. My word, we had snow three days ago. I don't know where it could have come from. The waiter, a solid-looking man in his 40s, was obviously very shaken. Bloody hell, pardon, sorry. Gave me a bit of a fright, that thing. Have you come from the tropics, madam? Could you have brought it with you in that luggage or clothes, maybe? I came from Italy. It was just as cold there as it is here and I didn't see a wasp the whole time I was there. We had snow about a week ago, so no, I don't think I brought it with me. She looked at the body of the wasp lying on the floor. It was the largest of its kind she had ever seen. Memory, fright, so much to feel. For a moment, 
the untended head took on Gary's features as they had looked during that damned Independence Day barbecue before the divorce tight and malevolent. And was it her imagination, or did the bloated, furry horror actually twitch as if sensing his potential victim's eyes on him? Emily lifted a hand to her brow. Excuse me, she said, and heard her own voice thin and wavering. But I have to sit down. I have to sit down now. Would you be very kind and grind that under your heel for me to make sure it's dead? There you go. She's, uh, she's on a journey. Nor, nor, has she, nor has she seen the last of that wasp. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>